You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. We're in the book of Daniel. Best book in the Bible this month. Let's open in prayer as everyone comes in and sits down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful book that you have us studying. And we ask with the disciples on the road to Emmaus that you would let us see Jesus in this book. Your word is about your son, and your word lifts you up and you have put it before your name. Let us give it that due that it deserves this morning as you illuminate our hearts and our minds that we might honor you in all that we do with what we receive from your teaching today. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So I was trying to figure out how to read just enough to get context. And Daniel is such a fast-paced book with vignettes that quickly change. It's really hard to do that. So we're going to read chapter 1. That will give us the context. So if you would open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, I sound kind of loud, or maybe I'm, it might just be me. You guys know what you're doing. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king of his officials, the chief of his officials, excuse me, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king." But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. 
And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus. So our study last time ended with verse 15, where the young men had undergone the 10-day test, and at the end of that test, they appeared better than, and they were fatter or in better shape than all the youths that had been eating the king's choice food. And we discussed how God had given Daniel discernment and understanding that in this particular king's court, to eat the king's food, his special choice of food, and to drink the king's wine was to participate in the worship of demons, the worship of idols. And so for that purpose, for that reason, Daniel and the four other three youths had purpose not to eat the king's choice food because by doing that, they would be saying it was much more significant in those days and even not to too many generations ago, when you ate someone's food, you were in agreement with them. They would have been demonstrating to the the entire Babylonian kingdom, if they ate the king's choice food, that they had acceded to the fact that the idols that these that these foods had been uh, sacrificed to were worth worshiping. And Daniel and these other three young men chose not to do that. In the same way, later on, we will see the three young men not bow to the statue. It was the very same worldview, biblical theological worldview, if you will, that informed their... Um, their consciences and their choice of duties. They would not bow the knee in any aspect, whether it was eating the wrong food or actually bowing the knee in front of a statue. They were the same thing to these young men. And so many, over the decades, over the centuries, I guess, over the millennia, there have been two schools of thought, or three, or four, or I'm not going to try and limit them, because when you start looking at uh, the different perspectives people have, you take this perspective and then somebody else comes up with a little tinge on it and it gets all out of whack. And, and at any rate, the idea has come about that we should be vegetarians. And this section of scripture in no way teaches that, nor does it teach that you better eat meat or you're going to die tomorrow. What it teaches is in, in the historical grammatical method of studying Scripture, you understand the history of the time, and we just discussed that. In the history of this time, the consuming of foods that had been used to worship idols meant you agreed with that worship. And that is why Daniel chose not to eat. Um, so there needs to be a word said here about the concept that the book of Daniel promotes an only vegetarian diet. First, we must understand that the Jewish diet included plenty of meat. There were certain requirements for the butchering of animals, and the blood had to be drained, and this is consistent with Scripture. Remember, it is important to let Scripture comment on itself. In the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 9-3 teaches that in the same way God gave Adam and Eve plants to eat, now you shall have everything that moves to eat. What does the word everything mean, usually, in context? Doesn't it mean everything? Yeah. 
So, later on, there will be dietary restrictions placed in the New Old Testament scriptures for the Jews themselves that we will, that we can look at if we want to, but, so later God placed some restrictions which, on which animals could be eaten, and so Leviticus chapter 11 details which animals were consumable in the Old Testament times and which were not on the list. And it's repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 14. So for those of you who want to look that up, Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy, the book of second teaching, Deuteronomy chapter 14. The list provided that animals that chewed the cud, such as cattle, sheep, goats, etc., were allowed. Many types of fish and fowl were allowed, and certain insects were allowed. Any of you ever eaten an insect? I tried it once. I opened my mouth and a mosquito flew in. Yeah, it was terrible. The fact that God went to such great lengths to provide a list of allowable, that is clean versus unclean animals, militates against pure vegetarianism as a doctrine of choice. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is given a vision. Now, it must be said that this vision in context, understanding Scripture and the historical grammatical uh, method of studying Scripture, was designed to remove Peter's aversion to giving Gentiles the gospel. That's what that was about in Acts chapter 10. But the fact is, God's declaration that what he had provided was clean and was not to be refused is a clear indication that animals could be consumed. Could be, I said. And it was bolstered by what is later said in, by Paul in 1 Timothy. So first, let's look at Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 14. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him and said, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. So Peter was talking about some of the animals that were in that sheet that he would not have been allowed as a Jewish man to eat. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, which I also mentioned just previously to this, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Later, in Acts chapter 15, when the apostles were dealing with false teachings about the gospel, mention is made again of the type of food that could be eaten. It, it included animals that had been properly butchered. Not strangled, but properly butchered. actually mentions that in the text. Remember, now, that Daniel's diet, back to that, back to the diet, the King James uses the word pulse, and what you find often in uh, translating Scripture, when a word is used once in Scripture... There's often some ambiguity because often Hebrew words, as do many words, you all know what a thesaurus is. A thesaurus is so that you can look up the pool of words that are similar to the one you've chosen. 
It's, a, it's like an expanded definition or an expanded dictionary. And so this particular word had kind of an expanded meaning, and it meant anything that was grown from the ground. So it could have meant tomatoes and beans and peas and carrots, but it could also have meant grains that could be harvested and made into breads and other types of things. I don't know if they had pasta in ancient Israel, but I hope they did. Hebrew spaghetti. So, the purpose, uh, the main purpose I wanted to do this this morning was so that we would get the impression or get the understanding that we shouldn't build doctrines on silence. Scripture clearly teaches that vegetables are good. Didn't your mom say they were good too? Didn't she? Okay, I want to see a few nods. My mom did. Matter of fact, I got in trouble for trying to flush some Brussels sprouts once before I ate them. Vegetables are good. Scripture also teaches that meat is good. And when we go beyond that, we begin to create doctrines that we require of other people that God never required of us. So let us always be careful about that. And then remember, as biblicists, we study Scripture using the grammatical historical context or the grammatical historical method. So we need to understand the history of the times, and we have to understand that these words were written from someone who lived in the 7th century B.C., who knew that in a kingdom that they lived in, if they partook of the king's food, they were acknowledging the king's rule and his worship of his gods. And Daniel would not do that. That is what this section is teaching us more than anything. And what, what can we learn from that? We can learn to let Scripture guide us in our dealings with other people and with how we... Um, Approach everything in life. It's not a Sunday book, but you all know that. So are there any questions before we move on? Comments? Verse, that would have been verse, we ended at 15. So we're on verse 16. Verse 16, Daniel chapter 1, verse 16. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. So God's sovereign approval of Daniel's decision to honor him, Daniel's decision to honor him is clearly evident here. And so Daniel and his friends were allowed to continue this diet which would honor God and refuse to honor the gods of Babylon. This was not lost on his overseers. This was not lost on his overseers. They understood the import of Daniel and his three friends' decision. They were alone in the Babylonian kingdom captives, choosing to continue to honor their God in the midst of a pagan culture. That is a terrifying thing. And they were probably 15 to 17 years old. What an example that can be to us. So, this is a testimony to Daniel's firm resolve not to dishonor God, to remain true to Scripture and to his upbringing. And more importantly, it allowed him to see that God would sustain him in honor to honor his obedience. I would not say that he was necessarily unafraid to do this, but he was willing to take whatever came when he put it, put as it were his foot down and decided to honor God. He knew what this could mean, what it could have meant to him. It could have meant loss of, he could have been killed. Um, these particular perverse kingdoms of those days, especially Babylon, which was the most powerful kingdom of the day. Remember, we talked about this when Esther came in before the king. She knew that if he didn't even acknowledge her, she could have forfeited her life. That's pretty close-minded, don't you think? Daniel knew about this, and Daniel was willing to take that, willing to take that chance and honor God. Spurgeon said it this way. 
He said, I think that a Christian man should be willing to be tried. He should be pleased to let his religion be put to the test. There, says he, hammer away if you like. Do what you want. Do, do you want to be carried to heaven on a feather bed? Do you want always to be protected from everybody's sneer and frown and to go to heaven as if you were riding in the procession on Lord Mayor's Day? So Spurgeon put it to his, the people of his time. If you truly will stand for what God has said, you will be persecuted. You will be. Now, that persecution can take different, uh, there's different kinds of persecution depending on where you live. Right now in parts of Africa, if you're a Christian, you may end up dead by machete. Here, we might be called out on Facebook. And I, I know that's hurtful, but it's a whole lot different than having your throat cut. And so we should, we should remember that. And Spurgeon, I think he caught it well. Any comments or questions about verse 16? Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So the Hebrew word for knowledge describes thought and science. The Hebrew word for intelligence bespeaks prudence in wisdom. But put together, these young men were described as having critical thinking skills and being able to use those critical thinking skills to come to solid conclusions about everything they came into contact with. Even though they were probably versed in the silly magical arts of the Chaldeans, these young men would have been able to separate the truth from the fiction in that. They were, they were given all the teaching of the Chaldeans. Much of that would have been good solid history, some science, and probably literature, and understanding of, of, uh, Proper critical thinking skills. Well, those proper critical thinking skills would have allowed them to separate the wheat from the chaff, if you will, and recognize that the magical arts of the Chaldean were just as silly as any magical arts of any time. (laughs) So the word translated literature describes anything, whether books or documents. And And the word translated wisdom describes the concept of carefully assessing something and wisely dealing with it. It's not just being able to think properly about it. It's being able to assess it and then respond to it correctly in your life and in your actions. These were character qualities that everyone should aspire to. But God gave them to these young men in spades, if you will. Further, Daniel was given the special ability to understand visions and dreams. And that's an interesting statement. That even in those times when it seems like everybody thought they could understand that stuff, the scripture says, no, Daniel was given this ability. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't. Interesting to me. I won't go ahead and build a doctrine on silence there because I just told you not to. But it seems very interesting that only Daniel was given that special ability. And this would have helped him in his role as an actual prophet of God. Living in the land that gave undue value to visions and dreams, these assets would serve Daniel well, and they would serve the other young men well as well. So they were being prepared both by the teaching they received, were receiving from the overseers and by God himself to become excellent servants in the, in the court of the king, but also witnesses for him in a pagan land. Remarkable witnesses for him in a pagan land. And we'll see more of that as we go through the book of Daniel. It's just a marvelous testimony to the sovereignty and the grace of God. In the same, they're like, those are like two stamps on the front and back of the same coin. God is sovereign, but he is full of grace. He is sovereign, but he is full of grace. Verse 18, 
<laughs> then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. So fast forward now, because this indicates that the three-year training period had passed. And Daniel does this often. All Actually, all books of the Bible do this often. They'll, <laughs> you'll have a, a whole section of scripture that's a detail of something that happened in a five-hour period, and then you're three years in the future. <laughs> Boom. So we're three years in the future. At this point, they had, they had the, the commander, the head commander, brings all the young men in and he presents them to the king. This would have been a formal presentation and would have been attended by some pomp and circumstance. I don't know what, but probably music and, and, uh, parade. I don't know. Just whatever those kinds of things did in those days. These young men would have been about 20 years old at this time. 20 years old. 20 years old. Do you remember when you were 20? I didn't even know which end was up when I was 20. What I would give sometimes to go back to those early days and have at least some of what I understand now, I would make far fewer mistakes, or I'd really make good mistakes, one of the two. So any comments about 17 and 18? Concerns? Questions? For those of you that are new, jump right in if you have a question. If I can't answer it, I'll tell you that. I won't be a politician. Verse 19. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. So the king actually conversed with each one of them. That would have been quite an honor in itself. (laughs) So this would have been very time-consuming. I don't know how many there were, but this would likely have taken a day or two. In his conversations... This king discovered that Daniel and his three friends were superior to all the rest. Each of them, as indicated here, entered the king's service. Here began their life of work as functionaries in the administration of King Nebuchadnezzar. So the king would have actually spent intimate, one-on-one time with each of them. I don't know if he brought Daniel and his three friends in together. I get the impression from the scripture, and I'm not going to be hard and fast about this, that he spoke to them individually. Because in order to draw out of someone enough information to understand all that it appears Nebuchadnezzar understood about each of them, that they were the best, they were the most impressive, they were the smartest, they were the most wise. You would have actually had to spend time with each of them, one-on-one. And uh, <clears throat> so out of this, out of these conferences comes for King Nebuchadnezzar that he's got four really, really good servants, and he's going to make use of them. So it says, and at verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them. So in that verse, in that phrase in verse 20 right there, he consulted them, consulted them about wisdom and understanding, matters of wisdom and understanding. So he would have asked them questions. He knew what they were learning. He knew what they were being taught in those three, in the three year period. Uh, indeed, he probably helped formulate the, the lesson plans, maybe. So he would have asked them specific questions about all the things that they had learned over the past three years. How long would that take for each person? I'm thinking it would have taken a couple of hours of conversation with each person. That's just my impression. I can't say that. I see that in Scripture, but that's my impression. And he says, he found them, now here's some hyperbole, maybe, maybe not, ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. Eighty-four percent of statistics are made up on the spot. No, 46.7 percent statistics are made up on the spot. Now, I'm not saying that's a made-up statistic at all. I'm just saying that that hyperbole is a useful tool 
to help people understand that something is really, really much better than this. So bacon is 10 times better than tofu. Maybe a hundred times better. Maybe a thousand times. More? Okay. 10,000 times better. Hyperbole. Um, and actually that would be subjective too. Maybe there's people in here who really like tofu. And that's okay. We'll pray for you. This statement indicates in a traditionally hyperbolic method that these young men had, who had honored God's commandments in their lives were far better advisors for the king in any, than any of the rest of the people of the young men who were brought before king, uh, brought, brought before the king who had come from Judah. They were better than any of the magicians and conquerors. He was allowing that he and the three other young men were not involved in the, in the, the some people think that because he uses the word magicians and conquerors, some critics, that Daniel and his four fr- three friends were involved in the occult arts. This is not so. Daniel was simply describing the other advisors who had come up through the ranks of the Chaldeans and were put into the service of the king. He and his three friends had remained true to God throughout the entire three-year period. It is completely unnecessary and even silly to assume that they then became magicians. Of course they didn't. Did they not stand for what was right in every situation to the possible loss of their lives? Why would they all of a sudden accede to the the strange and stupid arts of the Chaldeans? Um, And so that is, again, one of the things that the critics bring forward. Daniel was describing who the others were. So, any comments or questions about those two verses? Verse 21, and we'll finish up this chapter. I was trying to decide if I'm going to start chapter 2. It's quite an introduction, but we'll, we'll see what happens. So, another verse that the critics like to, t- to attack. No, really? Yeah, they attack everything about Daniel. Verse 21, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Because of this simple statement, critics have again attacked the book of Daniel regarding its accuracy and indirectly its supposed chronological consistency. Inconsistency, I should say. Daniel's vision was given to him in the third year of Cyrus's reign. There is no inconsistency here. The statement is simply indicative that Daniel continued his work into Cyrus's reign. The verse does not say Daniel died in the first year of Cyrus's reign. It is simply a statement summing up the introduction to the book, which is chapter 1. Further, since Cyrus's reign was at the end of Babylon's rule, Daniel has indicated that he survived the entire Babylonian rule. He was still alive when Cyrus came on the scene, and he was still serving. Clear in to the first year of Cyrus's reign. In a similar manner, Jeremiah, in chapter 1, verse 3, indicates his ministry extended until the end of the 11th year of Zechariah. Zedekiah, excuse me. Let me rephrase, let me restate that. In a similar matter, Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 3, indicates his ministry extended until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, King Zedekiah. Chapters 40 through 43 show that he ministered far beyond that time. And as John Walvert has indicated, these statements simply show that the prophet's ministry extended through the period in question without implying that the ministry ended in that period. It's just a statement of consistency. Daniel's reign or Daniel's service extended all the way into Cyrus's first year. And it did extend beyond. So that ends chapter one. Any questions or comments about it? And we have plenty of time to go through the introduction to chapter two. So I'm going to do that. But let's first chapter two is a long one, if I remember right. Yeah. So we're going to read 
We're going to read the first 17 verses of chapter 2. So Daniel chapter 2. Now, that means in light of all that's gone before, all the information you have in this introduction, all of the studies, all of the information you have about Daniel and about his three friends, about the king, about the work they did, about how they refused to knuckle under to pagan philosophies. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. That seems reasonable enough, doesn't it? Tell us what your dream was, and we'll interpret it for you. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made into a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Now, at that point, I'm thinking that the Chaldeans' mouths dropped open. Uh Uh-oh, he's on to us. They answered a second time and said, "Um, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. You will have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered, to the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king commands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, all the wise men of Babylon. That would include Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. What an introduction to chapter 2. By the way, the great prophecies of chapter 2 don't begin until verse 31. Um, It's like Daniel felt quite a need to set up everything and to give background about all the things that went on so we could all fully understand just how committed these men were to honoring God. Chapter 2 is where the great prophecies of Daniel begin. The first 30 verses of chapter 2 show a turn for the worse in the lives of the soothsayers and diviners of Babylon. Before this, in the book of Daniel, the main focus has been on the captivity of the Israelites and Daniel's dealings with his superiors in coming to terms with how their captivity would be spent. Chapter 1 ended on a fairly positive note, as positive as could be expected when we are dealing with the life of a captive of a slave. Chapter 2 begins with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is the dream that Daniel will interpret and which will describe the great broad sweep of history from his time until the second coming of Christ. Throughout this entire section in chapters 2 through verse chapter 2 through chapter 7, the future is revealed in various segments. And so here the critics the critics focus some of their severest attacks on the authenticity of the book. And so we remember 
that there are two views of this section of Daniel as well as all of Daniel. The first view is that this is a history written after all these events occurred. It was written after all these events had happened, all this had taken place. The second view, the correct view, is that this is a prophetic section that details the history to come. Frankly, especially considering the later predictions of the third and fourth kingdoms, this is the only view that makes any sense because he's predicting things that hadn't even happened by 166 AD, or BC, excuse me, AD. Further, for those who take the, this view that this is prophecy, there are two distinct subdivisions. <laughs> and we will get to those. We will deal with, deal with them as we, as we encounter them. The first subdivision for, is those who interpret the vision from a post-millennial or amillennial view. And the second would be from those who interpret this vision from a pre-millennial view. In his commentary, John Walvert explains the importance of this section and the understanding of the section in relation to those two views. He says this, The difference here resolves itself largely in differing views from how of how the image is destroyed and how the revelation relates to the present age and the two advents of Christ. Few chapters of the Bible are more determinative in establishing both the principles and content of prophecy than Daniel 2. Its study, accordingly, is crucial to any system of prophetic interpretation. Beginning in this section, in verse 4, Daniel will switch from Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, to Aramaic, the language of the common people of the Babylonian Empire. He uses Aramaic through verse 28 of chapter 7. This is the language of diplomacy during and after Daniel's time. It was an international language understood by Gentiles and Jews. Since this section of the book of Daniel deals with God's rule over Gentiles, Daniel naturally wrote in a language that the Gentiles would understand. He ha- had he written it in Hebrew, very, very few of the day would have understood the message. Um, I didn't develop this completely, this thought completely, but basically in our day and age, the business language of the world, whether it's right or wrong, is English. That is the business language of the whole world. So when trading stocks, oil, futures, those things are published in English in every language, in every country. If they were published in the language, the largest the language that has the most people who speak it, you and I would be lost. Does anyone in here know Mandarin Chinese? 900 million people speak Mandarin Chinese. And I would allege that many of them understand English because it is necessary, especially in the world of business, for them to understand the business language. This is not much different from what is happening here. Daniel wrote in the language of the empire of the day because this this information was to be propagated to the entire world at the time. And if it was propagated in Hebrew, a very small segment of the world would have understood this most important information. But it was propagated in Aramaic, which was the international language of the day. And far more people, most people, would understand what was going on. So as we work our way through the sections of prophecy, the understanding of some basic definitions will be helpful. The three views of the end times, amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism, are defi- there's a lot of L's in those words, are defined thus. Wrong way. So, 
amillennialism is the teaching that there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ as referenced in Revelation 20. It sees the 1,000-year period spoken of in Revelation 20 as figurative. Instead, it teaches that we are in the millennium now and that the return of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 5, 2, at the return of Christ, there will be the final judgment and the heavens and the earth will then be destroyed and remade, 2 Peter 3, 10. That is a very basic definition of amillennialism. And as you might have guessed, based on some of the other things I've said in the last couple of weeks, there are different shades of view about amillennial, amillennialism, and we may get into some of those. Premillennialism is the teaching concerning the end times, eschatology. It says that there is a future millennium, 1,000 years, as mentioned in Revelation 20, where Christ will rule and reign over the earth. At the beginning of the millennium, Satan and his angels will be bound and peace will exist on the entire earth. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released in order to raise an army against Jesus. Jesus will destroy them and then the final judgment will take place with the new heavens and the new earth being made. That is premillennialism. And finally, postmillennialism. So, ah, uh, not, it's actually not, not millennialism. They believe in a millennium. They just believe we're in it now. I was trying to think of a better word. Now millennialism or something? Neo-millennialism? I don't know. Amillennialism is what it has been described of since generations, centuries ago. Post-millennialism, after the millennium, is an eschatological, eschatological position within Christian theology that interprets Revelation 20 as a period in which through the preaching of the word of God, that the entire world will eventually be converted to Christianity, and this will usher in the kingdom of Christ. This is when Christ will return. It is post-millennial, it is post-millennial in that after the thousand-year reign of Christ, that the world will be converted and the final work of God will be completed. Some post-millennialists believe that the thousand years is literal, and others believe that it is figurative. It is inevitable that in 2,000 years of Christian history, we would have come up with a lot of views of things because <laughs> that's what we do best. No, it's like they said, if you lined up all the economists in the world, you'd never come to a conclusion. <laughs> or you'd have, no, I'll leave it at that. So, of course, there are variations of each one of these that have origi- arisen over the millennia, no pun intended. And as we progress through this study, we will touch on some of those. To complete our introduction to Daniel chapter 2, Walvert in his commentary describes this section from chapter 2, verse 7, thus. He says, chapter 2 through 7, chapters 2 through 7, form a chiastic pattern that offers encouragement and hope to the Jews in the times of the Gentiles. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, Daniel switched from Hebrew, the language of Israel, to Aramaic, the international language of the day. This change in language highlights Daniel's focus on the times of the Gentiles that would exist from this day until God established his messianic kingdom. Chapters 2 and 7 explain the succession of four Gentile empires that would exert control over Jerusalem and the Jews until God finally establishes his kingdom. Chapters 3 and 6 warn the Jews of the persecution they would face during this period and exhorts them to remain faithful to God in spite of this persecution like Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Just like that. Chapters 3 and 6 warn them of the persecution they would face and to remain faithful. Chapters 4 and 5 encourage the Jewish remnant by reminding them that a time would come when even the Gentile rulers would acknowledge that the God of Israel was ruling over the nations. Won't we look forward to that? When even 
the Gentile rulers will. Walvard uses the phrase chiastic pattern to describe the next six chapters. A chiasm, which isn't a southern way of saying a big hole in the ground, because everything in south, the south has at least two syllables. And, and. Am I right? Come on. A chiasm, also called a chiasmus, is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. The result is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in the passage. Each idea is connected to its reflection by a repeated word, often in a related form. An example would be, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You didn't know you knew a chiasm, did you? You all learned people there. Another one would be, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Scripture uses chiastic statements and chiastic structures often. There are people who think the entire book of Genesis is a chiasm. I, don't, I, I read that and I went, really? Who had that much time just to read Genesis 83,000 times, which is probably what we should do. Um, there are entire poems that exemplify the chiastic structure. Some chiasms, chiasms are easy to spot and others are far more difficult. For our purposes, as we study the book of Daniel, we will simply note that scholars have designated the six, these six chapters in, in Daniel as a chiasm. And as we can, we will note some of their characteristics. So that is the introduction to chapter 2, and uh, we will be getting going on that in July. Um, I'm not sure when Jim's going to start. God wrote a book again. Yeah, we'll talk about that. But uh, this is there's exciting times coming in this best book of the Bible. There's a lot going on. And, uh, and, and you often think that when someone's standing up here teaching that they know everything, you all know me well enough to know better than that. But I'm really enjoying studying this stuff. And I'm discovering that I had a pretty stunted view of eschatology in my life. I hadn't really thought it all through. And so I'm, I'm hoping you'll help me do that as we progress through the book of Daniel. Um, this is an incredible sweep of history, and it's going to be a wonderful study, and it's going to be challenging at times. Um, there are many different views, and in, as are the case, as is the case in much of Christian theology, biblical theology, for us as fallen creatures who haven't the, really have the mind of God, we aspire to it, but we don't have it. There will be things that other people believe that are not heresy. They're just different. And there will be things that we will believe that other people may think is heresy, but it really isn't. It's just a different way of, of organizing the end times, eschatology, if you will, and understanding it. And uh, we'll try to comment on that as we go through. There are different views of premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And in many cases, there are serious people who will defend to the death their particular shade in this, when in fact we should be gathering around the most important aspect, which is that the book of Daniel speaks of Christ. And Christ is to be exalted at every turn, at every turn. And the Father is to be exalted at every turn. And the Holy Spirit is to be exalted at every turn. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.